Hello and welcome to The Reeducation with Eli Lake. Today's show is all about the neoconservatives. Later on, we will have guest John Podoritz, the executive editor of Commentary Magazine. The neocons. Villains. Heroes in error. Nerds. Intellectuals. Broken windows. Iraq. So who are the neoconservatives? Well, the answer depends on who's speaking. If you're talking to a British socialist, neocon has a foul odor. Millions literally had to pay with their lives, blood, uh, to bring about the destruction of the neocon idea. I think the neocons are a busted flush. Pseudo-sophisticated way of saying Jew. If you're talking to a national conservative, neocon just means an inside-the-beltway type who opposed Trump. Think the Lincoln Project. To an anti-war activist, neocon just means the military-industrial complex. And to most people who follow politics rather vaguely, neocon sounds like something out of the early 2000s. Well, initially, neoconservative was meant as a jibe. Michael Harrington, the socialist historian, used it to denigrate the former liberals who had migrated to the Republican Party. And then the way that the gays and lesbians today have embraced queer, the slur was adopted by the target. The great Irving Kristol explained in a memoir essay in 2005, my Republican vote in the 1972 presidential election produced little shockwaves in the New York intellectual community. It didn't take long, a year or two, for the socialist writer Michael Harrington to come up with the term neoconservative to describe a renegade liberal like myself. To the chagrin of some of my friends, I decided to accept that term. There was no point calling myself a liberal when no one else would. So why do the former liberals like Irving Kristol throw up their hands and walk away from the left? A lot of this has to do with the 1960s. In the beginning of the decade, John F. Kennedy won a very close election against Richard Nixon. Now, Kennedy was a Democrat, but he ran a campaign that chastised the Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower for failing to build enough intercontinental ballistic missiles to keep pace with the Soviet Union. He liked tax cuts. He liked civil rights. He embraced the space race and promised to go to the moon. All of this sounds like kind of proto-weekly standard stuff to me. That was Irving Kristol's Democratic Party. In a few short years, the country, though, and the Democrats in particular, well, they went nuts. There were, of course, the riots of the 1960s, and there were anti-war protests as well. They got pretty ugly. By the end of the decades, bombings were a regular occurrence in big cities like New York. Crime was out of control. The fashionable intellectuals of that era had lost a sense that America had a moral purpose. So a group of intellectuals began their migration. At first, this centered around a senator from Washington state named Henry Scoop Jackson. Scoop was a Franklin Delano Roosevelt-style Democrat. He believed in the welfare state. But he also worried that his party was being taken over by radicals. And he ran his 1972 presidential campaign against those radicals. He ended up losing to one of them named George McGovern. McGovern wanted to end the Vietnam War at pretty much any cost, and it was embraced by a new counterculture obsessed with America's sins. So the neocons said, enough. A few stayed nominally democratic, working 
in and around Scoop Jackson. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great senator from New York, remained a Democrat too. But over time, the neoconservatives gravitated towards the Republican Party and particularly towards Ronald Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Their instincts were sound. Reagan upended the foreign policy consensus of the 1970s and pursued a strategy to bankrupt the Soviet Union through arms spending and supporting insurgencies against communist regimes all over the world. And Reagan's approach ended up spurring the collapse of the evil empire. Going into the 1990s, the neocons found themselves on the winning side of the foreign policy debate. Even a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, embraced neoconservative ideas like community policing and welfare reform. Then came George W. Bush. For a brief, brief moment, the neocons were in the captured seat. After the terror of 9-11, the president realized that his campaign that promised America could no longer be the world's global policeman was overtaken by events. The humble foreign policy Bush promised would not meet the moment. So the president turned to his neoconservative advisors, who counseled him to think big, to think about invading Iraq and to embrace America's preeminence as the world's sole superpower. It should be said here that Iraq was a festering crisis. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the tiny country that is a primary source of oil for much of the Western world. But tonight, the United States, the Soviet Union, Israel, and other powers are concentrating on diplomatic and economic solutions to this surprising and dangerous development. By the time George W. Bush began planning for the war that ended Saddam Hussein's reign. After Saddam invaded Kuwait in 1991, Bush's father, George H.W., launched the first Gulf War and drove Iraq's army out of Kuwait. A few years later, something called the Iraq Liberation Act, which became law in 1998 and sort of authorized training of a rebel force in Iraq with the express aim of toppling Saddam Hussein's tyranny, well, that legislation was supported by the neocons, of course, but it also had support from many prominent Democrats, including former Vice President Al Gore. None of this mattered much after America became mired in a bloody counterinsurgency in Iraq. The war, which initially was wildly popular with both Democrats and Republicans, was soon seen as a calamity, particularly after the military failed to find the weapons of mass destruction that Bush had promised the world Saddam was concealing. So the neocons became the scapegoat, particularly for the left. The progressive contempt is best summed up by a young state senator from Illinois named Barack Obama and an anti-war rally in 2002. What I'm opposed to is the cynical attempt by Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and other armchair weekend warriors in this administration 
to shove their ideological agendas down our throats, he said. Today, it's a segment of the right that sees the neocons hiding under their beds and in their closets. On any given evening, Tucker Carlson or his many imitators will rant about how all the neocons want is war and then blame them for the foreign policy of a decidedly liberal president, Joseph Biden. Atrocities happen during war, every war, always, no matter what the neocons may tell you. Now savor this irony, because like Jimmy Carter before him, Joe Biden's presidency today is reeling from the kind of wish casting that neocons have worked for two generations to demolish. The neocon position is that there's no point in negotiating climate treaties, trying to solve the Iran nuclear crisis with a thug like Vladimir Putin. It's the Biden administration that has spent the first 10 months of his presidency offering the Russian tyrant summits and sanctions relief in the hopes of taming his aggression. Biden tried the Tucker Carlson policy for Russia and also Afghanistan, where he ordered a hasty surrender, despite the warnings from his generals that the country would fall to the Taliban. American retreat from the world did not mollify Russia, it only emboldened it. And this is why it feels like another neocon moment, similar to the late 1970s. Like then, today, there is a raucous faction of the Democratic Party that sincerely believes America is an evil, evil place. Crime is rising, riots are threatening cities, and America is no longer feared by the world's gallery of rogues. Even Joe Biden has had to adjust. As he said in his State of the Union, his party no longer wants to defund the police. It wants to fund them. More recently, Biden appeared to endorse regime change in Moscow. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now, this improvised line was widely condemned as a dangerous gaffe. Was the president articulating a new policy of regime change for Russia? Biden's administration soon walked back, of course. But was this really that bad? Biden said had the advantage of being true. The world would be a safer and cleaner place without Vladimir Putin. If he were to be removed from office, other dictators may not be tempted to launch their own wars of conquest against weaker neighbors. A neoconservative approach to Russia today would not seek to invade the country like Iraq in 2003 or order the CIA to assassinate the Russian leader like so many Cold War plots. But it would make clear that Russia will not be able to return to the community of nations so long as Putin remains in power. Let his isolation his country's poverty, and the support from the West for Ukraine's resistance be a lesson to the world's other tyrants. The object is not only to end the war, as we often hear from the Biden administration and European leaders, but it is also to deter the world's other bullies from launching the next one. The neoconservatives want to build a world where American power is feared, that's not anything to be ashamed of. Indeed, it's the only policy that has a chance of achieving a lasting peace. So the next time you hear someone on Fox News like Tucker Carlson, or you're reading in some popular substack about how terrible all the neocons are, you should realize that much of it really is just kind of a fictional narrative. It's a story that various kinds of ideologues will like to tell themselves because they never tire of finding scapegoats. But the reality is, 
is that America needs neoconservatives now more than ever. We have spent too long pretending that sweet reason and financial sanctions and more diplomacy will tame regimes that have no interest in doing anything in the world other than imposing their will and trying to weaken America. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of The Reeducation with Eli Lake. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to the spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and use offer code LAKE. I just want to say, I've been reading The Spectator for years. They have some of my favorite writers, everyone from Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Christopher Buckley, and Julie Bindel, who's terrific. So I can't say enough about it, and I would recommend the listeners to this podcast to give it a whirl. The Spectator is less political party and a more cocktail party. And whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained and enlightened from cover to cover. And that's really a big part of the theme of our show here at The Reeducation, is to say that we are interested in debate, we're interested in testing assumptions, and we're interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints, and not just simply reinforcing ideological dogma. And that's just like The Spectator. So, again... Go to spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and the offer code LAKE. I cannot recommend it enough. This brings us to today's guest. John Podaritz is the editor-in-chief of Commentary Magazine. He is the son of Norman Podaritz, one of the original scions of the neoconservatives and the author of a brilliant essay in the latest issue of Commentary called Neoconservatism, A Vindication. John, thanks so much for coming on The Reeducation. A pleasure, of course. So I want to just jump into this. I really admire the essay. And I want to ask you where you see the parallels of today, 2022 in America and 1979, where the Jimmy Carter presidency kind of became a cropper. Well, the most obvious parallel is that in 1979, the Soviet Union invaded a neighboring country, Afghanistan. And in 2022, Russia, the successor state to the Soviet Union, has invaded a neighboring country, Ukraine. Obviously, different situations, different ideological compositions of the invading government, different reasons for the invasion. But just as the brazenness of the 1979 invasion of Afghanistan reawakened 
American politics to the dangers posed by the Soviet Union, which had been a open question over the previous three or four years with efforts to negotiate new nuclear arms treaties with Jimmy Carter, the then president, saying we've gotten over our inordinate fear of communism with the whole idea being that what we needed to do was live with and even make some sort of common Congress with the Soviet Union, that it was clear that this brazen violation of all international standards in invading a neighboring country with the purpose of basically controlling it and while not annexing it, which is really the Russian effort in Ukraine, but to control it, contain it, and, and subsume it under the Soviet yoke, that it was something that shocked, the conscience shocked the understanding of what it meant to be an ordinary country or a country with some leadership in the world. Jimmy Carter said in the wake of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that he had learned more about communism in a week than he had learned in his lifetime. And that, combined with a bunch of other things, led in almost inexorably a year later to the complete defenestration of the Carter presidency with a gigantic loss to Ronald Reagan, who said, I've never not known what communism was. I've never not known what the danger was that was being posed by this adversary. And Jimmy Carter was either, you know, naive or worse. And here we are in 2022. There's been this invasion of Ukraine that, again, has kind of shocked the world's conscience and raised questions about the the possibility of even living with this regime that Vladimir Putin runs. And when 1979 happened, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and I would say to some extent when in 2022 the Russians invaded Ukraine, it turns out that very few people believed in a set of ideas or foreign policy ideas that could both explain why this was done, why the Russians and the Soviets and the Russians had done these things and how to respond to them, what the causes were and what the solutions might be. And in both cases, as it turns out, in the 70s, the neoconservatives had said, don't make detente with the Soviet Union. Don't try to make deals with the Soviet Union. Don't make arms control treaties with the Soviet Union. They are interested in you know, expanding their own interests, expanding their own horizons in a certain type of ideological world domination. Any concession to them will be seen as an act of weakness and give them a green light. And similarly, I would say that in the wake of the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan that the United States under Joe Biden accomplished in the summer of 2021, that the people who said you can't do this because you are going to signal uh, weakness and that it is, it, it's time to test America's metal resolve and that of the West because you have shown this kind of, you've announced that you are unwilling to bear the burdens of, of global leadership, that seven months later, Putin goes into Ukraine, I submit, that and it was a basically a neoconservative idea that said if you show this kind of weakness there will be 
consequences, real world consequences, as that weakness is is read by adversaries who wish to advance against you. And that was not really, it's not really a conservative view or a Republican view. In the 70s, 60s, 70s, the conservative view of the Soviet Union was that it was a godless, uh, tyrannical state and that it's, it ne- what it needed to be was rolled back, that communism needed to be rolled back. In, in 2021 and 2022, the conservatives are even more divided. Some don't think we should do anything. Some think that Putin uh, isn't so terrible compared to the alternatives. A lot of ordinary rank-and-file Republicans and conservatives do not share that view and believe that, believe that the Soviet, that the, the Russia has done something terrible that needs to be confronted but not the intellectual class, which is more divided. And, and all in all, what, com- what really makes the two come together also comes together with neoconservative ideas on other matters is that Soviet Union and then Russia felt themselves free to do what they did because of a failure of deterrence. The United States' policies toward aggressive foreign actors who wish to destabilize the world system is to deter them from the temptation to do so. And that in both these cases, historically then and in present, our deterrence, our commitment to deterrence failed, the deterrence failed, and a green light was flashed in first the face of the Kremlin under the communists and now the Kremlin under Putin uh, with the results that we now see. Well, one of the things that you do, I think, uh, very cleverly in this essay is that you tie the concept of deterrence internationally to the concept of deterrence in terms of crime at home. And the other great parallel between 1979 and 2022 is we've seen rising crime rates, particularly over the past two years. Can you talk a little bit about that as well, which is that there's this other side of neoconservatism which I think has largely been forgotten because, you know, most people associate the neoconservatives with the Iraq war and George, George W. Bush. But there was, you know, a, a very important you know, movement kind of centered around the public interest in Irving Kristol's magazine that looked at a lot of these important domestic policy issues and applied important reforms that really did result in, you know, greater kind of domestic peace and prosperity. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, you know, you might say that neoconservatism, to the extent that it was a movement, which I, I don't really think it was, it's more a sort of a tendency within an intellectual camp, that it, it began not focused on foreign policy ideas, but on domestic policy ideas. And pretty much this, which is, okay, it's the 1960s. We're about to embark on a gigantic social experiment called the Great Society, in which we are going to attempt to end poverty cure racial divisions and and make American society fair. And enormous amounts of money are going to be spent. Enormous numbers of pieces of legislation are going to be passed. How's that going to work in practice? Let's watch. Let's evaluate the results of this experiment. And almost from the beginning, it was clear that the experiment was going off the rails. And social scientists like Nathan Glazer, who was the co-editor of The Public Interest with Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell and James Q. Wilson and Paul Seabury and a bunch of others 
looked at poverty programs, looked at redistributionist efforts economically, looked at a lot of this and said, you know what, so far what the signs are showing is it's not working very well if it's not working at all. And the primary place that it was clear that this reformist agenda was having terrible, almost immediate deleterious consequences was in public safety. In other words, crime fighting, crime stopping. And that because of progressive ideas about how to do this best, American policing underwent a revolution in the 1960s uh, to what came to be called 911 policing, which is to say that rather than taking as their primary objective the prevention of crime through the application of eyes on the street, as Jane Jacobs would have called it about citizens, that is cops on the beat, policemen walking around everywhere, knowing everybody, knowing that things were going wrong and sort of knowing who the bad apples are in a community, knowing where they live, knowing the community inside out, that you could deter crime before it happened and that this was the best way to deal with crime and that they had decided for professional complicated reasons that what they would do instead was respond to crimes when they had happened and try to arrest the perpetrators of crime after the crimes had been committed. And this turned out to be a disastrous way of dealing with crime when crime rates started to go up because people started to feel less and less safe for good reason. And criminals began to feel as though they were more and more able to ply their wares and do their business because there was no one there attempting to stop them before they before they kicked off their efforts. And so from 1964, really until 1994, with various stages and iterations, crime in the United States was completely out of control. Nobody in the cities, in any city, really felt particularly safe. There was a lot of menace. And, and, and as these policies were proving themselves to be flawed, bad, and having all these unintended consequences, the intellectuals who were behind them kept doubling down, saying that these were the results of despair, of joblessness, of a lack of understanding, of racism, of this, of that, of the other thing. And, and, and we just needed to keep pursuing the policies as we had them and trying to keep pursuing making life better for the criminal class in the United States so that they would stop preying on other people. And the American people, much, much in the way that was true about 1979 only with their reactions to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but the fall of the Shah in Iran and the rise of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, the fall of the government in Nicaragua and the rise of a Stalinist group called the Sandinistas that then took over Nicaragua, which is only a thousand miles from the Texas border, the discovery of Soviet brigades in Cuba, 90 miles off the American shoreline, that the American people said, nah, what are you doing to us? It's this is terrible. Your policies are terrible. Stop it. And so Ronald Reagan, the two major issues in the United States, the major domestic issue in the United States for 30 years was crime. That was the major number one domestic issue in the United States. It's hard to imagine this. It was totally science fictional to imagine it in 2015. By 2020 and by 2021, it was no longer science fictional. Cities were awash in crime. Murder rates were going up at the rate of 20, 25%. Shootings, killings, burglaries, these flash mob, you know, lootings and all that kind of stuff all happening everywhere. And what ties these together, I say in my piece, 
is this one word, deterrence, that the policy, American foreign policy was dedicated, or the neoconservative idea about how American successful foreign policy would work was not that we were supposed to go around liberating the world and bring democracy to the world. That's a misunderstanding. That was actually a somewhat evangelical, yeah, Yeah. it was kind of a somewhat evangelical idea, literally incepted by an evangelical Christian. That is Mike Gerson, who was was George W. Bush's speechwriter. The idea was you have to hold the Soviets in place. You got to freeze them where they are. Don't make life easy for them. Don't make economic deals with them. Don't make it so that they get better. They have, they are better woven into the international system. Make them deal with what George Kennan in his famous 1947 long telegram and essay, The Sources of Soviet Conduct, said were the, the internal contradictions of the Soviet regime and then see what happens. Let them stew in their own weakness and their own evil. But the way you do that is to deter them. You don't go at them. You don't attack them. You don't invade them. You don't try to roll back communism where it's advanced. You try to deter it. At, you try to keep it from advancing. And it's a relatively modest ambition when you think about it. It's not revolutionary, you know, okay. So, and in domestic terms, the crime-fighting policies that were started to be advocated were pretty much the same, which is stop try stop saying that there's nothing you can do to prevent crime. You can prevent crime. You just have to want to. You have to believe in certain types of ideas. On, that on smaller can. crimes, in some right. way. So that right, yeah, right. the ultimate right. So the ultimate, broken yeah, broke broken windows theory, or which is an analogy. It's an analogy theory, right? You have a building. It's an abandoned building. It has glass windows, but it's been abandoned. Somebody throws a rock and breaks one window. If you don't come and arrest the guy who threw the rock, and then you don't get a glazier to come and fix the window, in a week, every window in this abandoned building will be broken. And then no one's going to want to buy the building because it's become a vandalized wreck. And so it becomes a sinkhole. It becomes a community sinkhole. It becomes a disaster for civil society. It becomes something that doesn't pay any taxes and doesn't support itself and so on. And the analogy here is to, right, is that if you have a guy, somebody who jumps a subway turnstile, this is the most famous broken windows policing idea. Somebody jumps a turnstile, arrest him. You know why? Because in 90% of the cases, ordinary citizens who don't commit crimes will never jump that turnstile. Odds are, chances are, the person who jumps that turnstile has done other things, is out on probation for having committed other crimes, is on parole for having already served prison time for other crimes, and has now committed another crime and is clearly outside the bonds of civil, bounds of civil society. These ideas started to be floated in places like the public interest, and it took 15 years or so for them to really become policies that were actually experimented with by police departments and stuff like that. And the results were jaw-droppingly astounding, as were the results of the effort to deter the Soviet Union in the 1980s through many creative endeavors by the Reagan administration, not least 
the strategic defense initiative where um, the idea where we took our great advantage, our technological advantage and our economic advantage over the Soviet Union and said we were going to develop a program that was going to neutralize their ability to threaten us with nuclear weapons. And this so terrified them because they realized that this was the only whip hand they had that they started to renovate their own economy in an effort to get enough money so that they could meet us SDI for SDI. And that effort, Glasnost and then Perestroika, effectively destroyed the Soviet Union from within. Again, nine years, eight years, something like that, like not much time at all. And the crime well, element of the United States the, 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 the Casey Reagan doctrine of actually supporting, you know, Right. Some unsafe yeah, rebels, right? Yeah, Jonas of Imbi, yeah. uh, Contras, and so and, and and the Afghan rebels, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. so what you do there is again, but you don't do it for the purpose. You're not really doing it because your goal is to bring democracy to Angola. No, you're doing it because the Soviets are backing this guy. You back the other guy because it's like we're not going to just stand here and watch you march over and enslave another country. We're going to try to give the forces in that country that don't want that to happen some tools, just like you're giving the bad guys that you support tools. We're going to see if they can match it and fight back against it. That was true in El Salvador. It was true in Nicaragua. It was true in the Philippines. It was true in, and it was true in Angola and in Afghanistan. So, but these ultimately weren't revolutionary ideas. They were modest in scope. It was right. Just try to stop the bad actors from doing bad things to you and to the order that you represent and good things can come of that, but that don't, that, that, that there aren't a bridge too far that don't involve you in wars. You don't want to fight that don't, that don't that don't suck you into battles that you can't win. And that's where neoconservatism has had its vindication, I argue here, which is right. had we had we said, you know what, the cost of Afghanistan is pretty low. Cost of what we're doing in Afghanistan 20 years later is pretty low compared to what the cost could be if we pull out. And we were right and they were wrong. And the cost not only in Afghanistan was enormous. And will continue to be enormous. But I just think you can't run a counterfactual. But had we stayed the course in Afghanistan, I don't think Putin would be in Ukraine right now. Well, I mean, I, I don't know how you prove that. I mean, yeah, Putin's I know. Already I, in Ukraine? I, but I, is he going to go in with 200,000 yeah. people? Yeah, I don't know. So I want to touch on two more things uh, before we go. And the first is neoconservatism think changed as geopolitical realities changed. And what I mean by that is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, America is for a period, the, the lone superpower. And I think that that it was not only the neocons who fought bigger. It was everyone in the 1990s began thinking that they, we can use American power to change the world. The NGO movement you know, sometimes it's known as like neoliberalism, the idea that we're going to bring everybody into this, you know, the World Trade Organization, all of these sorts of ideas were in their ways utopian as was. And, you know, there's the fa famous Irving Crystal essay from the 1990s and saying, you know, now that we're the world's preeminent power and paraphrasing, you know, we ought to act like it. Was this 
an overreach. I mean, I think that most people would say it is, and it kind of led to the Iraq war, which I want to point out, and as I've pointed out before in the monologue, that this was supported by lots of non-neocons and Democrats and liberals. It's a very popular war at first. But leaving that aside, was that did something happen among the kind of thinkers who call themselves neoconservatives where they overreached because America was left standing after the Cold War? I don't know. It's a, you know, it's a very complicated question because it depends yeah. on how you define the term neoconservative, which is to say that like my father, whom you mentioned in 1996 said neoconservatism is gone. He published something called neoconservatism and elegy. He said, basically neoconservatism has become part of the broader American conservatism uh, right. in the wake of the end of the cold war. My mother, Midge Dector, uh, whom you didn't mention ran a, something called the Committee for the Free World, which was a neoconservative Cold War organization that she shut down right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Soviet Union. She shut it down because she said, we don't have a this. We had we we got we won. We did it. <laughs> so right. I got nothing. I got the free world doesn't need this kind of defense anymore because there's no antag there's no unfree world antagonist, really. I mean, there are plenty. There's plenty of bad guys in China and stuff like that. A lot of us then shifted our attention from the Soviet Union to China in the 1990s. I was working at the Weekly Standard. We did a special issue in uh, early 1996 on the threat posed by China. And as we can see, uh, nobody listened to us. No one on the right, no one on the left. Very few people listened to us. We said they don't, they steal your intellectual property. They don't believe in contract. They are empowering their military. They want all this technological gain in order to strengthen their military. They have designs on Taiwan. They have designs in the South China Sea. Everything that was in that, that special issue came to pass. But the hunger to uh, go into Chinese markets and the hunger to believe, and this was not a neoconservative belief. It was kind of a weird general idea that it would be great to knit ourselves into China because its economic liberalization would inevitably force political right. liberalization. This is Francis Fukuyama. Yes. Well, well, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, to be fair, yeah, it was like, it was, yeah. But economic liberalization would could precede political liberalization and force it. That right. some of that was true in the other countries in the Far East, in Taiwan, in South Korea, in other places and could be true here that that you would create a middle right. class and the middle class would demand political freedoms that went along with the economic freedom that china had started to provide to its citizens and we didn't believe that to be the case for the simple reason that authoritarian regimes evolve into something else communist regimes do not evolve there's no record in 100 years of a communist regime evolving, maybe Vietnam a little bit, but basically not really evolving out of communism. And so if China's a communist regime, in the end, there's going to have to be a choice between unfreedom and economic freedom, and unfreedom is going to win. And once again, we were right about that, too, because that's what happened in 2015 when Xi decided basically to shut, to, you know, shut down the a political liberalization movement and the economic liberalization movement, the freezing it in place where we had become dependent on them for a manufacturer. They were not dependent on us for, for anything at that point because they could close us off. So the evangelical, the idea that the, 
it was the neoconservatives who said, let's go around and, you know, free the world. Yeah, there was, if you're going to back a horse in a fight between communism and non-communism, one of the, one of the, alterations that neoconservatism made in 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 the fight in general on the right was to say no 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 don't back strong men in these countries don't back you know pinochet in these countries find people who believe in western ideas and back them if you're going to well, back i think i think the neoconservative influence was now that we don't need a pinochet to beat back the communists we right. should support or, the democratization and liberalization of but even right but even in the early 1980s when there were these choices in some of these places the idea was let's pick people who are more like us than not sure let's pick people who are gonna like not want to just take the people that they don't like and throw them in jail and suppress a free press right maybe we can have our cake and eat it too but let's pick Uh, corazon aquino over ferdinand marcos Right, or pick, uh, or pick the no movement in, in, in Chile instead of the vote Pinochet movement in again. Or, I don't know, there are a whole bunch of things that, that were, if you have a choice, you want to go with freedom or with people who's, who, who's, who talk the talk and walk the walk of freedom when you have a choice. And that, that predated the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, but if you're going into the 90s and the 2000s, the idea was, well, you know, uh, democracies don't fight each other. That was the other great yes. point of wisdom, right? Europe, thousand years, most violent place on earth. All they did was have war with each other. 1945 to 1950, every one of those countries goes democratic. We have no, you know, this is the longest period of time in, since the year 1000 AD that the French and the, some version of the French and some version of the Germans have not been at literal war with each other at some place or other on the European continent. It's 80, almost 80 years. That's an amazing achievement. And we have no reason to believe that it's ever going to stop. Right. So adapting that idea to the rest of the world, if we make the world democratic, that's safer for us, not because freedom is the most wonderful thing though it is, but also because democracies don't go to war with each other. And then maybe people got over, maybe people, got high in their own supply. But I'm not sure that the neoconservatives were any more high in their own supply about these ideas than ordinary conservatives were or anybody else was. For example, I'll give you an example of this, which is the idea that the neoconservatives, who, who a lot of whom were you know, backers of Israel, who viewed Saudi Arabia and the Arab countries that attacked Israel with horror, that neoconservatives would be blamed for having the evangelical notion that Iraq could be a functioning liberal democracy is almost savagely ironic because the last people on earth that you would have turned to to say, boy, these Arab countries, you know what, these people are okay, they're all right, they just want what everybody else wants. That was not part of, the neoconservative ethos was Bernard Lewis who said, you know, Arab political thought is diseased. And mainstream Arab political thought functions in a diseased fashion and is really not reparable in its own, you know, taken in its own way. It was much more pessimistic. Bernard Lewis is... Well, that's fair to say. But there were, in the neocon orbit, people like Natan Sharansky, David Brooks, when he was at the Weekly Standard, for Mm -hmm. sure. There was a lot of talk of the idea that, first of all, it was good for America to have big national projects. Right. Which was the big weekly standard idea in this period. 
And then the other idea, as I said, it was in the air, the idea of democratic peace theory, mm-hmm. the sense of a kind of inevitability of freedom in these parts of the world. Right. And even though Bernard Lewis has done remarkable work as a historian, especially in the Arab and Muslim world, and that's an element of his work, I think that everybody after the, you know, in this period of the 90s and the 2000s was caught up in a little bit of wish casting in this regard. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. There was a lot of wish casting, but the idea that was specific and no, I agree with you. It's not to the neoconservatives that they brought this to the dance. That's why I brought up the China stuff, because the neoconservatives, to the extent, were always skeptical of this idea of, of the liberalization and democratization of China because of its embrace of one corner of liberalization, right. which was economic liberalization. And very, very suspicious of it when everybody, the businessmen on the right and the kind of Jeffrey Sachs foreign policy minds on the center left, believed it, bought it, and were, yeah. were just said, oh, you just want another Cold War. That's all you want. It's like you, you don't have the Soviets anymore. So just the way that some people are now saying this about what's going on in Ukraine. It's like you just want us, the West, to be at war with Ukraine because you're nostalgic for the Cold War. Really? Like we yeah. didn't start the war in Ukraine. Right. No, well, what are you talking about? Well, that you're getting into this, the, the final thing I want to get into in this. And, then I'm, and that is. I, I don't want to dwell on any specific critiques of the essay, but it was a it was I really enjoyed it because it was a provocation. There was a certain kind of response that kind of was like relying on twenty year old talking points about neocons that had very little to do with the argument you were making, and it was really about just we should never forget that we. Our, our prime directive is to anathematize neoconservatives. Right. This became a political identity in the 2000s for the left. And then weirdly, in ways that sort of blow my mind, has now become a part of the political identity of the NatCon Tucker Carlson right. And it's a strange thing to sort of see the reaction to this essay, which is actually far more nuanced and serious reading of the history of this movement that it's almost like the critique is why are you affirming my cartoonish view of neocons? No, I mean, this I think is the ultimate, the ultimately, okay. Take you and me and commentary and things that we've been saying and you said in commentary and that we've said on the commentary podcast, for example, we, I am not, and we are not triumphalist about Ukraine and its prospects against Russia. No. Uh, I mean, I am very, I remain as worried as I, I mean, I'm not as worried. I'm less worried because of the staggering results of the last 33 or 34 days. But I remain very worried that Ukrainian effort to retard the Soviet, the Russian advance is doomed to ultimately to failure, that it can be ground down and ground away. And what's more, that the West's wonderful rallying around the Ukrainian flag will be evanescent, that we will lose Mm -hmm. our patience with it and that we will. So I am not looking at this and saying, boy, this is fantastic. We're going to we're going to get the band back together. Like I, I look at this and I'm like, look, the circumstances are this is a much less powerful country versus a much more powerful country. 
and usually uh, there are times, including the Russians in Afghanistan, where that dynamic plays to the advantage of the weaker country over time, although with at immense cost to that weaker country, like we're seeing right now in Mariupol in Ukraine. Sure. Where people are starving, hundreds, a hundred thousand people are are now, you know, basically with cut off from food and potable water. I, so you know, I I got no triumphalism in me, and in fact, what this reminds me of is when the Soviet Union fell in the late '80s. Nobody was more surprised than my father, who was said to have been sort of a foolish, you know, blah, blah you know, it's like. Nobody really believed the Soviets were going to fall. The idea was, look, they were an evil empire and they were very powerful. And, you know, what we needed to do was retard them and fight them and 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 do what we could to stop them and freeze them in place. But were they going to fall? Like, that was not really something that was in the formulae because, you know, evil exists in the world and evil usually does pretty well. It's just a question of whether it's going to expand its territory. And so... I'm amused by the idea that, you know, we're back and, you know, as Matt Taibbi said, I suck because I'm talking about how neoconservatives was right then and is right now. And I hope I'm wrong. Like, I don't want to be right that right. I, that Ukraine may not go as wonderfully well as people right now are wish ping, maybe wish casting that they will, that it will. But I think that this is much more of a real world philosophy than it is a you know, idealist philosophy. It is the world's full of bad actors. What do you do to stop them? And my view is both domestically and in foreign terms, you use deterrence. Deterrence is the only real tool in the tool shed that is secure enough to use because it's not too provocative and it's also not toothless. And it, and the blade is sharp enough to count but it's not too sharp to cut somebody's head off. And it's also not too dull to be a butter knife and therefore not much of a threat to anybody. Well, the other thing is I thought that specifically Taibi really disappointed me because he wanted to blame you in commentary for going along with Russiagate because there were other neoconservatives who sort of did without recognizing that I think the commentary in my work that you've published has been very critical of that in a different context where Taibbi is. So it's uh, that's where I felt like I was reading that piece and some of the other things that were said about this essay that they didn't they weren't bothering to say anything about what you were arguing. They they were just they simply had this thing in their head. They're like, uh oh, somebody wrote something nice about the neocons. That that the last time that required the following protocol. You yeah. know what I mean? And and it was and it it it, it is a weird part of like the political discourse that. You know, almost 20 years after George W. Bush's Iraq war, that neo that anti-neoconservative is still such a defining kind of characteristic of, of elements of our discourse at this point. I look, I think it's very simple. The truth about neoconservatism is that it always punched above its weight. Yes. Didn't have followers. It's not a big movement. There's no grassroots. It's a bunch of people who write and read, they're not even, a lot of them aren't even like experts in the sense that they've spent, you know, they're like right. Kremlinologists or stuff like that. Just pugnacious people with common sense who said, this is not good. And if you want to, if you want to make sure that the Soviet Union doesn't get a jump on freedom, you got to face it. 
it's not exactly like rocket science. It's not, you know, it's not the world's most sophisticated foreign policy theory or something that requires you to have a divinity school degree. It's like schoolyard politics. You know, if there's a bully, you don't have to, you don't have to beat up the bully, but if you can somehow stop, if you stop the bully's punch from hitting you or hitting somebody else, the bully may fade. It's not, it's like I say, it's not rocket science. And, but it was very plain and I would say almost incontrovertible really, because it wasn't missionary. It didn't say, you know, if it said like, you know what, don't make a salt two treaty with the Soviet union at the time, people were like, what are you crazy? We have to, it's like, really, why do we have to, we don't have to, it's a bad idea. First of all, the treaty's bad. It enshrines Soviet superiority in the number of nuclear warheads. That's stupid. Why would we want to do that just to get a piece of paper in front of us? And B, like, this is giving them all kinds of reasons to think that, you know, because we want to talk to them so much, they can do whatever they want to. And you know what happened? That's what happened. They invaded the Afghanistan and the SALTU Treaty died. It had 66% support, according to the Harris poll, and it died in the water. Never was put up for a vote in the Senate. Never happened. And similarly, you know, it's like, just don't pull out of Afghanistan. Like, nobody's dying. Right. You know, Americans aren't dying. It doesn't cost very much. Everybody in the military now is a volunteer. No one's forcing anybody to go and be in Afghanistan in the way that people were forced to go to Vietnam. So they can retire. They don't have to go on a fourth duty, whatever it is. All things being equal, the cost of pulling out is going to be way greater than the cost of staying. It's not that there's no cost to staying. That's just common sense. And then it turned out that commonsensical idea was correct, I think. And so people, for some reason, don't like that. They've never liked that. And, you know, and that's just a kind of, that's just a quality of character that the neoconservatives have rubbed people the wrong way for 60 years. And they're usually people who like don't, and they also get annoyed. Like there's a whole thing on the right. There's this new, you know, I was noticing. So, um, you know, there's this new journal, you know, Compact Mag, Compact yes. website, this TradCon website. And a guy named Adrian Vermeule wrote a piece, himself a tenured professor at the Harvard Law School, in which he said, it's so unfair because, you know, here we are 20 years later and the neocons have, you know, totally discredited themselves and yet they have all the conferences and they have all the speaking gigs and they have all the, they have, they go on TV a lot. And essentially it's like, what about me? Well, first of all, you're a tenured professor at Harvard Law School. So congratulations on having a job that you can never be fired from where you can say any kind of dumb shit you want to and live there forever. So fine. Congratulations. I didn't know that you were such a victim. And second of all, like this was something that was said by by paleoconservatives in the 1980s obsessively about the neoconservatives. It's not fair. We're sitting here in Rockford, Illinois, publishing chronicles. Everybody should be coming and courting us. But instead, it's the neocons who write for the Wall Street Journal and who, you know, go on the McNeil Lehrer News Hour. And what about me? And you know what? The hell with you. Like, why didn't I get invited to Sea Island, Georgia? Yeah, I know. But again, like the hell with you, you know, it's like, you know, so what? So they, so we, so people go on TV or don't go on TV. Like really, that's what 
causes an intellectual movement to 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 form and fest you know like is anger that you're somehow not getting your own you're not getting sort of the love you deserve trust me there's very little love thrown the way of a neoconservative not and and i we don't need it you don't need it that's not what any of this is about no no i agree i i think it's deeper than that though i think that at least for the people who define themselves what used to be called the net roots yeah their identity was to stop what they believed were a diabolical cabal of policy intellectuals from getting us into another war and that might sound like a kind of crazy grisham-esque conspiracy theory and who could possibly believe it but i assure you all the generation that came up after 9-11, which, you know, kind of I see myself in some ways as part of professionally, those who were on the anti-war left, that was the animating view. It was we and they were a lot of people who twisted themselves into pretzels, arguing that the honor and neutrality and objectivity of the CIA had to be protected from the pernicious influence of neoconservatives yeah so you had the left defending the cia which is a kind of an amazing thing but that was the view and i also always think well that's the left they're they're that's they're always going to look for their scapegoats but then when i see some old friends or maybe ex-friends of ours on the right making those arguments it's just it's both hilarious and troubling i think in the end that common sense generally wins out sure i mean it's a giant struggle over time but the common sense generally wins out and so what we see in the response to the russian invasion of ukraine is an enormous explosion of elementary common sense meaning wait a minute you can't do that like you're starting a war for no reason to take over a country that's not your country why are you doing that? I guess this means that you believe that this is a good way to behave. And there are all these other countries on your border. And if you do well here, maybe you'll do that to some of these other countries. And Europe's been pretty peaceful since 1945. And that's not good. And you're right, bad. Right. And you know what? The people who are fighting you they're pretty good. Like they're funny and they're kind of, they're doing funny things and they're resolute and they're tough. And I like to look at this guy, Zelensky, he's really impressive. And so I like them and I don't like you. And that's not foreign policy gods. And that's right, not right. people at NATO meetings that appears to be Western opinion. That is Western yeah. opinion. Michael McFall, who was, was former uh, ambassador to Russia, Soviet and Russian expert said on Twitter the other day that he went to give a speech at a university in South Dakota and 3,000 people showed up because, you know what, people do care about foreign policy. Now everyone says yeah. nobody cares. They do care about Ukraine. They're driving, 3,000 people went to hear him speak. Like, I don't think 300 people have ever gone to hear him speak before. Sure. They care. Yeah. They know something bad. So this is... When people sometimes say, look, you know, you can't beat the good common sense of the American people. But I think in the end, what I like about neoconservatism is its relative simplicity. That is like, 
Matt Connetti has a piece in commentary, the same issue that you're talking about, that you have your piece in about the world has changed and we must change along with it, that says, believe them. Vladimir yeah, right. Putin said yeah. <laughs> he was going to do this. And everyone's like, ah, he's not going to do it. Believe them. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. You know, right. it's, not, it's not a complicated doctrine. It's all common sense. And neoconservatism, I think, was an effort both in this, when it was sort of, when it was incepted in the 1960s, was an effort to say, let's just try to apply common sense to these really sophisticated ideas, first about how yeah. to end poverty, and then also about how to deal with the threat from the Soviet Union. Let's apply common sense because all these people are being so clever and creative. They're coming up with counterintuitive ideas. And you know why they're counterintuitive? Because the intuition is right and the counterintuition is wrong. <laughs> right. I'll leave it with this. And thank you so much for your time, Don. This is a real treasure. It's a real treat. But it reminds me of uh, a great Whit Stillman movie, Barcelona, in which the main the two uh, cousins are having a picnic with their Spanish hosts who are leftists. And they're going on explaining like, you know, the cold, it's the, during the cold war. And at one point, the uh, sort of more neocon character, they're explaining in terms of black ants versus red ants. And he says, where are the red ants? And he just picks up a rock and smashes the red ants. And so that's what we ought to be doing. And that's kind of like, that's the kind of, it's don't overthink it. We'll play that clip. John, thank you so much. And please, you know, in, of course, you should read Commentary Magazine, subscribe, listen to their great podcast on five times a week. And anyway, thank you again, John. Pleasure, Eli, to be on this side of the microphone from you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 